You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, Going Pro with June Cuervo. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? It's going well, BJ. I haven't gotten to play this week, mostly because I've been focused on working on uh, my course of becoming a life coach, and I'm really excited about it. I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've managed to get through the first section of it, and i got 11 more sections to go. How's your week been? Well, first of all, congratulations. One of 11 sessions done, or one of 12. I think you said you had 11 left. That's great. I'm looking forward to when you get certified as a life coach, because that's going to bring so much more value, not just to the podcast, but I'm going to be selfish. Me too, because I think a lot of people, myself included, could use the benefit of having a life coach just to make sure that we steer ourselves on the right course. I want you to know for for many people, I'm willing to do this service for free. You, I'm charging double. Double free? (laughs) I'll take that. I'll take that. Double the price of free. Awesome. No, this week's been great. This week's been great. We reached a milestone at work this week. We were kind of at an impasse and tensions were high and there was a lot of stress going on. And finally, Thursday, we came to a head and reached a decision that everybody loves. And it's, I'm not going to say it's blue skies moving forward, but it's going to be a lot less contentious going on. And I told everybody, I'm taking Friday off. You'll find me at Maryland Live. I'm taking the day off. So true to form, I took the day off and both my sessions Friday and today were killer sessions. I didn't do anything spectacular. I pretty much played my ABC game. Today in particular, I was really proud of my mental game. I was stuck a ton the first three hours. I was card dead. I had nothing better than top pair. I was losing hands left and right. Even if I three bet, I might get four bet, or I might completely whiff the flop with no equity continue, or I'd end up with second best hand. And I told myself, self, just keep on keeping on. Stick to the plan. It'll turn around. Don't force it. Just take the spots as they come. And I ended up turning it around and making like 25 big blinds per hour. It's been a great week. And I have to credit the conversations that you and I have had about mental game and resilience and all those episodes that we've had to prep for. So thanks for forcing me again to do this podcast. So I really appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad it's been a uh, plus EV adventure for you. It has. It has. So in terms of lessons that we've learned over the course of our poker career, We are honored this week to have June Cuervo as a guest. June Cuervo is a professional poker player and game designer, originally from Oakland, California, and currently residing in Las Vegas, Nevada. She's a live and online pro who primarily plays 2-5 and 5-10 No Limit at the Win and Aria Poker Rooms, or 100 and 200 NL online. Outside of work, she's passionate about roller skating and going out on adventures with her wife and two dogs. June, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, folks? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. I got to ask, game designer. As a gamer myself, I play Pathfinders. I grew up in high school playing D&D, the old third ed. What's it like being a game designer? And I got to ask how that ties into poker. (laughs) Yeah, with game design, I got into just being like a lifelong gamer, like growing up playing, like I think my my first console was an NES, right? And then I just kind of like kept gaming throughout my childhood and my adulthood. And Game design, I tend to liken to, I guess, like what you're essentially trying to do is create experiences for people, right? So I think one of the really fun things about game design is your game designer in a way is kind of like a DM of an experience. 
you're trying to figure out like who's going to play your game and what their specific needs and desires are. And you're trying to create an experience for the players that play your game that they're going to remember and enjoy. And so many games I've played throughout my life and so many D&D campaigns and things like that, I really remember to this day. And I, I think I think of fond memories. And I think um, being a game designer is about trying to create those for other people. And I was saying it relates to poker in the sense that I just like love games. I'm just a lover of games, period. And I tend to have kind of an uh, obsessive personality when it comes to like finding things and getting really into them and like spending a lot of time on them. And my hobbies are like not very many, but I'm very like into them. Like I kind of tend to go all in on whatever particular hobbies I like. And poker uh, was no different. So yeah, about three and a half years ago, I got into poker and I became quite obsessed with learning it and improving at it. Only three and a half years, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I used to play this game Magic the Gathering. This is common for anybody who's uh, in the poker world, which is a uh, sort of heavy variance strategy card game. And there were tournaments for it and things like this. So I, I played this game growing up, and I played it as a young adult and even as an adult adult. And, uh, you know, over the my time playing it, um, eventually I met somebody who played poker, and they were like, you really seem to be good at this magic game. It's really fun, but you should try poker. I bet you'd be really good at it. Uh, turns out they were right. And I mean, it wasn't at first, of course. I think I lost like, I don't know, I, re I remember losing my first $5 buy-in on global poker and crying internally. I wasn't that emotionally wrought about it. But it's one of those things where, you know, everybody has their own poker journey and poker is a very counterintuitive game to learn. So I think early on in my, in my poker career, uh, I experienced a lot of the same pitfalls basically as everyone else. I also played Magic the Gathering. Rad. I played it in college. I played it a little bit after college, but not really that much. And I think it's interesting the way that gaming ties into poker, especially in the RPG realm. You mentioned your first console was a NES, and I'm thinking Final Fantasy. I've played almost every single Final Fantasy game there is, and you're trying to tell a story. Dal and I just finished a podcast series about bluffing, which kind of ties into our previous series about betting, which all ties into telling a credible story. And that story has to be compelling. And if it's not a compelling story, you're not going to want to play the game. You're not going to want to continue. And as a game designer, I can imagine you're looking at these hands, trying to manufacture EV or these spots to try to give your opponent an experience, an experience that maybe they have value when they don't, or that they can bluff when they can't. I don't know if you could talk more about that. Yeah. So I think um, in practical terms, what you're describing is you're trying to play a hand in a way that's sort of like essentially the phrase that I use often is you want to put yourself at a part of the game tree where your hand is the most profitable. And that might mean like checking a marginal hand with the intention to check call or overbetting a value hand uh, to try and extract the maximum with like a hand like that. And I think a lot of the time that like idea of telling a story, that's shorthand for playing your poker hand in a way that makes the most sense or is most likely for your opponent to take the actions that are profitable for that poker hand. For example, it's not like you're loving a pot-sized river bet with top pair no kicker in most situations. Like you'd, you'd probably rather they just check or you bet yourself if you're in position they checked you and you bet. But if you play the hand in a certain way, which is to say maybe you check turn or flop, you keep the pot small and give yourself the opportunity to sort of like call that later bet in a way that's going to be less of a like huge bluff catcher moment and more of like a, a manageable bluff catcher or like a manageable clear call or something like this. So yeah, I think I think a lot of a poker hand is seeing the full through line of what situations and outcomes make most sense for your particular hand. I think with like students I've had and 
um, even as like a professional thinking about spots, I really advocate very often for like a hand versus range approach to poker, which is thinking, especially when you're learning, thinking a lot less about your own range and just thinking about the specific incentives of your hand. And I do think that doing that allows you to tell a story much more clearly about like the kinds of game actions you'd, you'd like your opponent to take or the things you'd like to have happen. I think that it certainly can get to the point where you're talking about a hand against a range. Do you think that there has to be a point where you're talking about portions of your range as opposed to specifically a hand? Because the reality is, for me anyways, that I can't just look at my hand. I have to look at the particular range I have going forward. And at some point, it comes down to what is my hand in this situation. But hopefully, I have some possibilities there other than just my hand for bluffs or any type of being able to tell that story going forward. I don't know how you think about it, but when I think about it, just playing my hand specifically seems very limiting. Yeah, so when I say hand versus range, I mean, it's just sort of like one analysis method for thinking about a particular poker hand. But I do think it's one that people tend to forget as they become more advanced. And the reason why I I tend to emphasize it, especially with people I talk to, is it's very unlikely your average recreational opponent is doing a very in-depth range analysis of the situation. It is much more likely that even if your opponent's somewhat competent, they're just playing their hand. That's that's actually much more likely. So like when you're talking about like the way you're going to play a range, that's going to come down to things like sizing, right? Like what sizings your range prefers. Is this like a texture where you're just turn card where you're doing a lot of overbetting or pot size betting or half pot betting or whatever the case may be? Those are all pretty high level considerations in terms of like how you're going to play your hand. Your average player, when they decide on their bet size, isn't deciding on a bet size very often that corresponds to their range. They're deciding on a bet size that corresponds to their hand uh, and the outcomes they want to generate. And I think we've all seen this. I, I've seen this as high as like 5, 10, 20 and stuff in Vegas. We were playing with like a recreational player. And that when they have a weak hand, they bet like half pot. And when they have like a pretty good hand, they bet pot. And when they're bluffing, they bet like 2x pot. And they have these like tendencies in terms of like how they're constructing their bet sizes. And I, I'm a big believer that you should pay a lot of attention to the things that people are doing from like within the context of that one poker hand and how you're how your like specific hand is performing against it. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I agree with you. I think the sort of like correct high level analysis is like a range versus range analysis, because that's going to dictate your meta strategy, like things like your bet size and your betting frequency. In general, if you're against, an, especially if you're against an opponent who's not really on that level of thinking, I think it behooves your strategy much more to just play your specific hand against what you perceive their range to be. And this kind of bears out in like solver practice as well. For anybody who happens to have Pio Solver or is interested in solvers, you can sort of do what's called node locking, where you give your opponent a specific strategy, and then you see how your range performs and what your the optimal strategy is for your range. And you can create interesting things. Like if you say like, oh, my opponent literally only has the nuts and that's what they're betting with and they're checking when they don't have the nuts, the solver isn't going to play some balanced strategy against their betting range. It's just going to fold range to a bet. People have this idea of the solver doing these like making these like kind of outlandish calls and like it, it does. But if you give it sensible inputs, it'll give you a sensible output, which is to say it's never going to hero call the second nuts if your opponent's betting range is only the nuts, right? It'll always fold, so... That's something we try to say on this show a lot is that people tend to think that GTO is always balanced. I'm not even a fan of the word balance, but they always think that. And we've tried to impart to our listeners that 
when you put in a certain information into the solver that says your opponent plays this way, your solver will give you an exploit to it. It's not it's not going to give you just always a balanced thing. So it's good to hear somebody who is, well, considerably smarter than me from what I'm getting out of this, be able to say the same thing. It makes me feel like at least I'm on the right path and that I'm sharing the right information. I think an interesting takeaway from what you just said there, June, about the merits of playing your hand versus range versus range versus range is that I might decrease the likelihood that I level myself. Because if I'm ascribing to my opponent a level of thinking or metagame that they're not capable of, I would tend to want to go range versus range. Okay, they're taking this check raise action. Well, I know I would do this check raise with not just my values, not just my two pair and sets, but also my strong draws, you know, maybe an open ended straight draw or a, a nut flush draw, whatever. So if I'm going to do that, and this person's a thinking player, why wouldn't they do that? The likelihood is low that I'm going to be up against a player who doesn't play just their hand, but actually plays their range. So when I do a range versus range construction and I fashion my metagame in such a way, I open myself up to leveling myself, which Dell's heard me say multiple times, I've fallen victim to. I've probably lost my biggest pots by leveling myself and backing myself into a corner that I can't get away from because I didn't just play my hand. So I'm curious, how did you come about that realization where it makes more sense to just play your range versus when it makes more sense to actually go range versus range? Like, what was your experience that led you to that? Because that was an epiphany for me right there. Sure, yeah. Um, so firstly, I'll always say, I, this is what I've, I've told, I told a student of mine this the other day, and I think it rolls off the tongue really well. Regs are nits until proven innocent. Love it. And love it's it. one of those things where you have to remember that your average reggae player, even one who understands some nuances around how poker ranges interact and understands that when they check raise a turn, they have to have the correct proportion of bluffs based on the sizing you're using and all these things. Let's say you have someone who understands all those things. It is now even another step further for them to dig that up inside themselves and execute it. And I think that that's something that you know people don't really appreciate is like for some of us, when we started turn check raising for me in the womb, but I don't know about anybody else, but you know, <laughs> when I started turn check raising people, that was, that was something that I, you start incorporating into your strategy. I was like, oh, well, I can't always do this with value. I, I have to have bluffs. And then I would think about bluffs and then I bluffed, ended up bluffing too much. Like I essentially like, I kind of never had it when I was check raising. And then with my value hands, I would just bet I would never check. So everyone has their own ways that they arrive at these different things. And I think that as an online player, you play a lot of volume. You can try a lot of things. You can be very experimental. A lot of regs are live players. So as a result, even if they understand how these spots might be constructed in theory, it's very unlikely they're actually going to execute on it because they're playing such low volume. Like how many like how many turned combo draw check raise bluffs do you get in a month if you're playing 40 hours a week? One? Let's see, 40 hours Maybe. a week. So you're getting, you're getting like 30 <laughs> hands an hour. So like 1,200 hands. You're probably folding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're probably only playing 20% of those hands. So you're talking about 240 hands. Yeah, yeah, once or twice. Yeah, once or twice maybe. Um, so, and that's also true. Like, And then you're talking about other spots, right? What about button versus big blind? That like never happens in live poker. It's such an o common online spot. You play button versus big blind, like I swear to God, like half the pots. That's like where you start almost studying online. When you compare that, it's like, oh, well, what about um, button versus big blind flop check raises? Well, that's like a pretty uncommon live spot. That is quite rare to get in that spot where you have like a reasonable check raise bluff, but uh, you know, big blind versus button 
uh, especially one of the more unintuitive ones, right? So if you spend a lot of time studying a spot, you might find like, oh, wow, I'm supposed to be like, I don't know, if there's a board like uh, six, seven queen with a heart and you have like king four of hearts in the big blind. That, that's like a mandatory check raise from a theory perspective. Backdoor straight draw, backdoor flush draw, blocking kings, blocking king, queen, like you just always check raise this hand. So that, how many times, like if you study that and you learn it, how many times are you going to be in a spot where you get to implement that in a, from, in a live poker setting? I think I've gotten a check raise like that like four times in a year of playing poker, maybe. Like I, I, I can think of like two. You know, so it's like, I'm going to maybe say a couple more times I'm forgetting. But you see what I'm saying here, where it's like, you're the people who play live poker, especially the regs who only play live poker, the volume is low. So the likelihood that they're correctly implementing a strategy is low. And the likelihood that they're being results oriented and just playing their hand against you is much, much higher than most people give credit for. So as a result, I say, I actually start as a default by playing hand versus range in big spots. That's the default. Because... You have to like my general exploit is that in these like turn check raise spots, they're supposed to have a lot of counterintuitive bluffs in single raise pots. If you're playing like 150 200 blinds, they're supposed to have like middle pair gut shot nothing that they check raise and then rip river with. And it's like I've, I've never seen that in live poker. I see it online, like it's it the opponents are tougher and there's more volume and people are willing to go for it a little bit more, but. You kind of don't see the like naked <laughs> like set blocker gut shot brick out and then go go for like a 1k pot like or like a thousand dollar river bluff like it's not that common right so it's like it's not even uncommon from a results oriented perspective it just doesn't really happen <laughs> I would go as far as to say it's quite rare and if you did do something like that I do things like this and then get called people will be like, oh, wow, you're like, you're like a whale. Like, you must be horrible to make this play, right? Uh, because it looks so weird. It's like not a thing that you're like, you think in your head you're supposed to do. So in a kind of roundabout way of answering your question, I think it's important to just begin by accepting that your opponents, they do bluff, but it's about finding parts of the game tree or types of hand, like, you know, a, maybe in a plain English way of saying that is poker situations where bluffs are a little more likely. But like turn check raise jam river is not a hot like there's not a lot of bluffs happening in live poker in that po in that line. So uh, yeah, it's just being aware of that like actually trusting your gut on the, those things too where it's like I understand what my strategy is, but like your average reg just is not playing these strategies. They're they're much more concerned with just getting value with their good hands and like not bluffing it off. Yeah. See, June, you thought you were coming on this podcast to talk about what you learned from a year of playing professional poker, you've actually come on this podcast just to teach PJ and I some poker theory, and we appreciate that. <laughs> well, I will, I will say that like these are things I've learned this year. Like this is, uh, I think, very in keeping with the the theme of the show because I didn't think this when I started playing when I moved to Vegas to play poker a year ago. I had a much like I don't know. I was very like I trusted that people also studied. I thought that people cared about being good poker players that was my assumption that was very misguided <laughs> well, i love it <laughs> they, they did no, not it is so wrong I, okay so i violated one of my key principles today in the session because i was a little bit emotionally compromised by the reaction i ended up four bet shoving with ace three of clubs i'm not going to go into the details i won ace three of clubs held up and people looked at me just like june just like you said they looked at me like i'm a i'm a terrible whale what's going on and I turned to the guy to my right, and I'm like, if I'm not four betting a pulled range, what am I doing? 
And he looked at me as if to just say, what does polled mean? Well, that's because they don't know. They don't know. But to June's point, a lot of these players don't have any interest in getting better. And Dell, you and I have preached often on this podcast, the Pareto Principle. Focus on the 20% of theory that gets you the 80% of the benefit. Or focus on the 20% of formations that get you the 80% of the EV and the equity that you want out of your sessions. And you'll likely come out as a, a winning player. For that remaining 20%, that's a tough nut to crack. And I think, June, that's where you've spent a lot of your time over the past three and a half years learning, especially this past year, learning how to bridge that gap between theory and application for that remaining 20%. So what, like, what was the biggest lesson you learned over the past year? What, what brought you to that next level? I think a lot of what I learned over the year really is summarized by firstly saying that nothing is easy in poker. If if it was easy, the, the, this would be like a trivial. The podcast would be like, do these things, go home, right? Like there would be no poker community discussing it. There would be no dozens of podcasts. There would be no theory books. There'd be no solvers if it was easy, right? So um, everything's quite difficult. So my win rate of playing 2-5 for a year in Las Vegas is $70 an hour. It's about 1,000 hours of playing poker. That's not really my win rate. I also every single day studied, almost every day, definitely took breaks. I'm on Discord servers, plural. Uh, I have a group chat with other live professionals where I reviewed hands, posted hands, got in calls, watched people's live sessions, gave them feedback, reviewed databases, like all kinds of things, right? Like my win rate easily cut in half. Like I spent just as much time off the table as on the table, fully immersed in poker. So like really when people talk about their win rates, they're talking about, I sat down at the poker table and pressed play on Poker Tracker. And now I'm playing poker and then I cashed out and then I typed that into my thing and that's my win rate. That's not really your win rate, right? Like, because so much of your time external to the table is devoted to achieving that win rate as an investment. And I'd also argue that you kind of can't just get to a point in poker where, oh, now you don't have to study anymore, right? Like, you don't have to think about it anymore. You can just go play and your win rate's like a pure win rate, you know, because so much of someone's poker thinking and ability to excel at the table is like confidence and knowledge and ideas generated by that time off the table in the poker community and also studying. So people who are professionals will post really nice looking numbers perhaps about their win rates and how much money they're making, but it's not something you can do unless you truly love the game because, and I happen to, I really enjoyed it the whole, basically the whole time. It's really like, it's almost like an obsession because you have to be so dedicated to it in order to get those those last few dollars <laughs> out of your like at the table hourly, but also moving up stakes, right? So you're like your time is invested in playing higher bigger games as well. Like being able to play like five ten when it runs, occasionally play ten twenty when it runs if you have the bankroll and like, oh this game looks really good, I should get in it. Like there's this tournament series going on and I, I think the five ten is gonna be great tonight. And being able to take a shot and have confidence in that game too. You know, if you're like a $45 an hour winner in 2-5, unless it's a very soft 5-10 game, you probably shouldn't be playing 5-10. Like, you're just going to play against way more people who are going to like kind of obliterate you. So it's like, it's very much worthwhile to like spend a lot of time studying for like that reason as well. But all of that cuts into your hourly. The time driving to the casino, the food breaks, the tips, everything. Like, it all cuts into your hourly at the end of the day. So big, big, big lesson is you do really have to love it and love poker and love being immersed in it. I think for it to um, for it to be something that's even viable, 
<laughs> for someone because it's it's so big and complex. So that, that was like, I think maybe the biggest lesson was there's no like, to have the kind of win rate that I had, there's no, um, there's no half professional poker player really. Like you can play part-time and be profitable, but getting those last like three to five big blinds per hour just requires like a ton of effort to like really to really get so and it's very worth doing because you know it sets you up for your success in the future as well so that's a big lesson for me is just how much time commitment there is in the whole professional poker player thing i think that's fascinating and by the way this is a really good segue into something that i mentioned a couple weeks ago that i was going to take on a challenge where i would at the conclusion of our bluffing series create a bunch of videos on youtube once a week for two weeks to talk about how we carry our range through the flop that includes both value and bluffing. And I realized within a day that there was no possible way I could do this because I had never done video editing before. So it took me a long time to learn video editing. And now I think I'm set up to it to where maybe I could post a video every other day. It's still not going to be every day for two weeks, but your point June about that eats into my hourly. We're doing a podcast and Dell and I actually both consider the research, the actual podcast, as study because we are talking about the game and theory and behavior, whatever. And now I'm learning about video editing, which is all in the service of doing these bluff and value flop positions. That's still time. And I'm thinking last week, my 13-year-old son says, Dad, you spend every day downstairs on the gaming computer. Why do you spend so much time? And it's because I'm doing all of this meta activity surrounding poker, either studying or preparing material or preparing content, I had never considered that that actually eats into my hourly. And that, that's an amazing thing. It's almost like a, a school teacher where you don't just teach in the class. You have to go home and grade papers for like seven hours. So I, I got to ask, given that you spend so much time as a professional player on the table and off the table immersed in the game because it's an obsession, it's a thing you love, how has your lifestyle changed and how has your wife taken to it? Because, I mean, that's a relationship issue that I have to speak about with my family as well. Oh, well, luckily she plays full-time now, too. <laughs> Jealous. I wish I had a wife who played full-time, too. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> uh, it's good. I mean, I, it's it's funny. It, when I got into, like, Melissa and I, oh, her name's Melissa, she, we've been together 10 years. Uh, we've been through a lot in terms of just our relationship. Whenever you're with someone for that long, we met when I was like, 22 so i'm 32 now so the cool thing about our relationship is we're both very enthusiastic about the things the other person gets into so like she got really into roller skating i got really into roller skating she went to like a local comedy uh theater to do live improv and then i took classes and i started performing improv comedy i started playing poker and she was like oh yeah i saw that on tv as a kid i'm gonna learn how to play too so like just the dynamic of our relationship is we're and I think in some ways, a really successful part of our relationship that I think gives me a lot of hope for our relationship in the future is just that we are very into what the other person's into, broadly speaking, uh, and willing to try it at least. Like there have been things where I'll try it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do this. I have other things to do. And like vice versa, you know, not every single thing we're like we take to or whatever, but we always put some effort in. And with poker, uh, that happened for her. And then she kind of realized as I was getting better and better at it and I was making money, she was like, oh, well. I, I hate working. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we, she started playing a lot. And then when I got laid off like a year and a half ago, I was like, hey, I'm really going to go all in on this poker thing. I'm going to like really, really play. I've seen a lot of numbers. I think it's sustainable, et cetera. 
And she's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to play a lot of poker and see how it turns out. And she's a very, very fast learner. And she's actually a much more diligent studier than I am. So I think I had a better intuitive grasp of the game from my gaming in my life. And poker came slower to her in that sense. But she's a much harder worker in terms of actually putting in the theory work. So from a lifestyle perspective, we both play full time. So really, it's like wake up at noon, exercise, walk the dogs. And then it's like, where do you want to play today, Han? It's like... Uh, do you want to go to the wind? It's like, we always go to the wind. Where do you, do you want to go somewhere different? <laughs> and then we argue about that. <laughs> and then uh, we end up playing, we're going to play and we'll play a session. So I think kind of alluded to this earlier, but um, I'm going to probably go back to working a job job, or I am going to. And I just had a really great opportunity come up that would be kind of silly to pass on. And in doing so, uh, she's going to keep playing full time. So she'll continue to play full time and I'll have my little job. We like to joke that I'm a washed-up pro now. Nice, nice. <laughs> at 32. Washed-up pro at the ripe old age of 32, absolutely. So yeah. I love how a lot of couples will argue about where to eat for dinner, and you two will argue about where to go to crush souls. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's great because, you know, there are, there are some nuances to it. Like when sometimes it could be hard to detangle like a relationship – element from like a poker hand to session like if she sends a hand it's not always clear if she's saying hey i want some reassurance of this or hey i want you to kind of pick it apart or hey like like what sort of mindset should i approach the discussion about whatever she's texting me about to the table yeah i mean i like to think i'm a pretty good communicator it there are definitely moments where it, it was tough but like now i'll just be like like hey nice hand um, do you have any questions? Like, do you have anything you want me to say, like about the hand or whatever? Rather than just be like, "Oh yeah, this this check raise is punting." Like, you can't you can't do that, <laughs> or like whatever, or whatever like very harsh, non helpful thing you might say to somebody who just lost like a two thousand dollar pot or whatever. Right? <laughs> like, you just have to like, <laughs> uh, you have to like try to read the room a little bit on that. But I I think it also has a, a caused me to approach more poker relationships a little more empathy too in the sense that not everyone wants the same thing from every interaction about poker strategy sometimes it's okay to want a little reassurance on how you played something without going too in-depth on it and i think that's like a helpful mental game thing too where it's just like you don't really need to like deep dive on everything you do you just need sometimes it's just kind of like you lose a big pot and you're like is this reasonable as played and like you don't even need to, you don't want like a deep analysis of it you just want like is this like did i play the hand sensibly enough that no one's like oh like a player wouldn't look at this and be like oh you're horrible or whatever you know like just like some baseline reassurance that you played the hand well after you lose a big pot i think that can be nice too for mental game reasons so but yeah the lifestyle of being a professional poker player is a little weird you wake up kind of late you go out to play kind of late managing your own sleep schedule is tough lots of elements to it that are tricky but uh fortunately i'm kind of a night owl anyway I don't think I would recommend poker if you weren't, because those are the best hours to play. You know, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. is the win gift shop, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> People are rolling in from the pits, ready to play some poker. So, you know, you don't you want to be awake for that. So it's one of those things where I think, in, in general, having like a like a sleep schedule that's accommodating of uh, what I call the D-Gen hours uh, is, is nice when you're a professional poker player. You're starting this new job. One, I want to know if you're excited about it. And two, I want to know... Do you see yourself returning back to full-time poker in the future? I am excited about it. I love game design. It's, I mean, I was kind of burnt out on it because I did it for seven years straight before 
uh, transitioning to poker. But yeah, I'm excited to do the job. It'll be fun. I like video game design. I'm working for Niantic. They're the people who made Pokemon Go. I'm not working on that game, but they're the people who made that game. And uh, they seem like a great company, and I'm like broadly just excited for that because it's exciting inherently to start a new endeavor of any kind. But yeah, definitely. And I'm going to keep playing poker even when I'm working. Like I'll play as poker as much as I played it when I worked my old job and went to the live poker room or like to a local poker room to play live poker, uh, which was like three times a week. So I imagine that won't really change. Uh, once I get settled into the new gig, I'll be playing some more poker. So I always say that it's like, really, now I'm just going to be working more because I'm, I'm not going to like not play poker because I love it so much. So <laughs> you're going to end up playing a lot of poker still. There's kind of no no way around it. And I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about the, the work I've done in poker is if job doesn't work out for every reason, any reason, it's kind of no big deal. I'll have something, at least in the short term, no matter what, probably for the rest of my life where it's like, I'll always be able to like make some money. So I would like to try to do two things. Honestly, I don't know how to say this without sounding like it's bullshit. As I'm thinking it, I'm thinking the moment you say this, it sounds like bullshit. June, the fact that you're trans means nothing to me. I invited you to be a part of this podcast from the point of view of being a woman playing poker, being abused at the table. When you were on Veronica's podcast, there was a lot of conversation about that. And I would just like to bring up the fact that you were on that podcast and that there was a lot of conversation and how that's been over the last year, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if it isn't obvious to an average listener by the sound of my voice, I'm a transgender woman. I like to say I was like thinking something was amiss in the realm of my gender for a long time, but really in the last two years is when I was sort of like uh, actually accepting the reality of my situation rather than running from it or pretending it doesn't exist or some various other forms of coping with these things. And I think I discovered poker not long before I started seriously considering the idea of a gender transition. And those things were pretty connected for me, which is kind of cool, I think, when I get to think about this chapter in my life is <laughs> poker is very difficult and gender transition is also very difficult. And I think of them really as two of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, period. And I kind of did them both at the same time, which I think is cool, like just as a uh, as a, like a life thing. Right. Veronica, I know through Instagram, actually, that's how we, we started talking. And and what I would do on my Instagram is I would share anecdotes at the poker table of things that happened to me or conversations that I had that were sort of related to my transness. and. Veronica was like, you have so many of these interesting stories that you tell on your Instagram. I want you to come on and like, you can, you can talk on my show. We'll talk about sort of your transgender experience and all that stuff. So and that was a really awesome experience. And that sort of, that was really nice because I think it gave, for a lot of people who saw that and they were just kind of like, I think a lot of the attention around trans issues from well-meaning people seems to be sort of a fear of offending trans people as much as it is a desire to do good. But I can promise you trans people are broadly not very offended. That's just kind of a media narrative around like people who I get misgendered all the time. I don't freak out on people. I just tell them what my pronouns are and we kind of move on with the conversation. So it's, you know, and people have this worry of, um, of screwing it up, but in general, it's very obvious to me when someone is well-meaning versus when somebody's malicious, I think we can all identify that in our lives. I'm no different. I'm also capable of identifying that. And in general, most people are in fact, well-meaning as it turns out. So it's one of those things where most of my interactions at the poker table as a woman and as a, a poker player and that have to do with my gender, I would say come from that place of well-meaning ignorance. 
I have a couple really memorable anecdotes. The the first is that <laughs> uh, I met a woman whose child was transgender, and she sat next to me at the win, and it was as though her eyes said, oh my god, I get to talk to somebody about this, right? Because she clearly didn't know what to do, right, on some level about this. And, you know, she just said, like, my child's telling me they're transgender, they're 16, I don't know what's going on. Is this just like a fad? What if, you know, like they're trying to like, and they're using a lot of words and language that kind of applies that the media has some influence over their perception of what being transgender is and like these kinds of things. It was really interesting to talk to them because it was just kind of like, we got to kind of unpack that together. And I told her a lot about my life and how I came to being transgender and how I kind of knew when I was 16, but I had a pretty unsupportive, conservative American household that there's no way that that was going to happen, right? And it would have made my life hell even had I even bothered to go down that path when I was 16. For this person, I think we kind of eventually got to a point in the conversation where we really connected over it. And she felt like, one, if you're trans, it's not the end of your life. You can have like a full happy life where you do stuff. Like I have a successful career as a poker player and as a game designer. I have a loving relationship my relationship didn't end when I transitioned. My wife is bi. It's not a big deal. We're still together. We're still happy. We're still the same people. There's a lot of things like where people worry that like the way society is going to treat you is somehow going to like make your life unlivable in some way. And I think the thing that actually makes your life unlivable is not being able to have agency over your body and how you present to the world. That's the thing that makes your life unlivable, not the perceptions of other people. I can be called infinite hateful things and know that I still made the right decision because I'm happier every day for the decision I made. When we talk about beautiful connections we have with people at the poker table, people we meet, conversations we have, I'm really reminded of this story because I feel like in some way, me meeting this woman, and I think I probably changed her child's life by existing as myself and having this conversation with this woman, because at the end of it, she was like, you know, I'm going to do what you suggest, which I suggested one, why haven't you gotten a gender therapist for your child? Like that should be the first thing you do. You have a child. You should see therapy for helping them navigate this very complex set of feelings they're having. And secondly, you should call them what they want to be called. 16 is not seven. We're dealing with somebody who has like pretty complex thoughts. Even a 13-year-old has pretty complex thoughts about themselves. So you should be respectful of what your child wants to be called because it will make them happy. And you should be invested in that as a parent. She took my advice, ostensibly. She said she was going to. And I think that's kind of a great thing that I was able to connect with this person at the poker table in a way where we talk about all the cool connections we make at the poker table. But I think it's very powerful to sit and share time together as human beings, even if you're just gambling and playing cards. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just happy I did, we didn't play any hands together. I didn't want to stack this woman. Like, I was trying to provide guidance on her transgender child like we don't need to get into it you know we don't need aces versus kings right now like we can chill so uh but yeah so joking aside though i've had positive experiences like that but i've also had negative experiences where you know people are harassing me I, people have had to get escorted out by security because they were so i don't know aggressive towards me i guess i would say um i've had people say just absolutely horrendous things to me at the poker table and walking to and from the card room uh yeah you name it you know, I've heard it on some level. And I think that that is really sad and unfortunate. And at this point, the thing that I try to compel people to think about is not how do we create less of these comic book villains that are shouting slurs at me? These people are just 
doing what like you're not you're not changing anyone's hearts and minds talking to these people. Do not engage. <laughs> Back down <laughs> from the like nonsense these people are spewing. Instead, find the people whom are the targets of these attacks, verbal or otherwise, and do what you can to be a part of their lives and support them. Because for me, the thing that made these momentary blips in my life where I was targeted and harassed for whatever reason, tolerable are great staff and friends. The Wynn card room and the Resorts World card rooms have fantastic staff who handled the situation very efficiently and swiftly by removing this person from the space, apologizing to me, and then making it clear that I was safe to continue to play in that place. I've had people repeatedly misgender me, and then eventually I'll say, like, I was playing a session where someone was misgendering me repeatedly. It was unclear if it was malicious at this point because it was just so repeated. And I was pretty frustrated. And the floor came over and actually pulled them aside and said, you're going to have to leave if you can't get this right. This is our resource world. And I really appreciate that because it's sort of like, it's not just a word. It's not, it's, you know, this is important. This is like who I am. And I need you to just be on a baseline respectful of that. So very long-winded way of saying that don't worry about the people who are doing these like harassing people on the internet or targeting them like you just want to ignore them you, you want to focus on the person being targeted it doesn't have to be for trans issues any issues in general and just sort of make sure that that person's safe and feel knows that they're welcome to continue participating in the activity like that's that's the important part it's interesting what you just said there because it means i can't really do much <laughs> and i don't like that you know i don't i don't really particularly care for it because i want to think that there's got to be a solution that i can participate in and you did give me a solution i can participate in I think about, it's not altruistic. My thinking isn't altruistic. I want more women playing the game. I want more minorities playing the game. I want them playing the game because that's better for all of us. So it's not altruistic. I want something out of it. But the reality is, just as a decent human being, I want to see this misogyny that happens within the poker room go away. And that might be funny coming from a 51-year-old gray-bearded white man who's, you know, heterosexual, but it's how I feel. Now, I'm going to be honest, June, it is possible that I would go and accidentally misgender somebody. I'm not going to pretend that I'm perfect. Part of the problem is up until 45, there was no debate about it. If you were born with a penis, you were a man. If you were born with a vagina, you were a woman. And the debate didn't exist in my world. But I will tell you this, that if somebody says to me, excuse me, that that's not my pronoun, I would never argue with them. It wouldn't have been a debate. And the reason being is you don't have to be open-minded or progressive to not be a dick. You don't have to agree with how somebody's living their life to not be a jerk to them. So yeah, I get what you're saying, you know, support that person and stuff. But I mean, one of the things that stood out to me from one of your recent tweets was that you were being misgendered by staff in one of these rooms. I have the opinion that I'm willing to pay rake to have a safe place to play poker. They're supposed to provide me with a fair, honest, and safe game. And it's not safe if they allow their own staff to do that. I want to agree with you. I want to say, well, yeah, just support the person, be supportive of that person. But I think that's easier done with somebody like yourself who has no problem standing up for yourself. In fact, if I try to stand up for you, all I'm doing is undermining your power, right? That's all I'm doing. I'm just trying to say, well, I can handle this for you. No. All right. If you can stand up for yourself, I think you should, and I should just be supportive of it. But there are people who aren't you, June. 
who aren't capable of standing up for themselves. Do you have thoughts on what can be done in that situation? I mean, other than call the floor, that's probably misgendering them anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's like it's interesting because from my perspective, I tend to just give my play to places that are more aware of me and maybe broadly more aware of queer issues. The win is like where I play a lot and everyone there knows me. It's like every staff member there, every dealer knows me. I've played so many hours at the win. It does become a non-issue wherever you play, I will say. So for me, depending on the day, it's like pretty obvious that I'm a woman. Sometimes I just want to go play cards though. I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans. So it's like not necessarily super obvious to the person looking at me or hearing me speak that I'm trans. However, I am undeniably quite gender ambiguous at the very least. So the thing I've sort of communicated to Floor, you know, when I've been asked about this thing is just to say, just don't use gendered language with somebody if you're not certain of their gender on some level, right? It's like, it's not that hard. Like, just don't say, sir. Just say, hey, June, use my, just use my name. Like, you have my name. I called in, right? So it's like, and I told you who I was when I got there. So just say, like, hey, June, table seven or whatever. There's like ways to circumvent this problem. <laughs> and I think, you know, for some people in service, like their kind of snap reaction is like, what is this person's gender? Oh, they have a deeper voice. Uh, sir. Okay, cool. And then they kind of send you on your way. It's pretty uncomfortable. Like, I don't like that. And I wish that were different. And I have voiced my displeasure on both the internet and in person that this occurs. And hopefully there is some change. Hopefully there's some more awareness. And I think part of it is that poker is a very normative industry, which is to say that I think it's a pretty good reflection of the American populace as a whole in some way, where it's you just have a lot of – it's quite mainstream, right? It's in casino floors, which are open to tourism from all over the world. So it has this sort of like typical idea of how men should behave and women should behave and like all the sort of trappings of our society from a gender perspective I think are kind of represented in a casino. And in general, I've done as much as I can, at least on my end, to sort of dispel that. You know, I, I will say, too, it's like it's not all bad and it's not all good. Like I said, the win is amazing. Like I always have such a great experience whenever I'm there. There's never any issues. And part of it is that when you play somewhere less, they don't necessarily know you. They don't necessarily can't necessarily figure it out on their own. And also different cultures, right? Like a lot of floor staff, they speak English, but it's like clearly not their first language. They've maybe never even met a trans person in their entire life. I've had many conversations with people. This is a, a good story. This is about actually about Johnny Vibes, which is funny. We were sitting next to each other playing, and I said, talking a little bit about trans issues, and I said, Mr. Vibes, have you yourself ever met a transgender person before this moment? And he thought about it, and to his credit, he said, you know, I actually don't think I have. And I said, well, it's interesting that people have so many opinions about it then. He's great, by the way. I, lo I love Johnny Vibes. Rad guy. Like, just the best. But... It's an interesting thing to think about, and I often say this to people. For having never met even one trans person, it's interesting to have any opinions at all, almost. It's sort of unusual, or at the very least, negative opinions, because you don't necessarily know, right? So, yeah, I think in general, it's a mixed bag in terms of awareness. And yes, I am paying rake, and yes, I'm paying customer, and yes, I have an MGM gold life card. I kind of think about less of like from a service perspective and more of like an interpersonal perspective. Like, how can these, how can I communicate with these people in a way where that it's clear that this is frustrating, you know, in some way. And everyone reacts differently to different things. I'll also say that, like, here's like a really common reaction. I'll get misgendered by a dealer and I'll say, oh, actually it's miss. They'll say, oh, it's, it's on you, sir. And I'll say, it's actually miss. And then they'll laugh. And I think there's a way to take that where it's like, oh, are you laughing at me? Like, is this funny to you? There's a way to be kind of aggressive, right? Whereas my reaction is usually, 
this person either genuinely thinks I'm kidding, which I'm not, uh, and I usually make it clear that I'm not kidding, uh, or two is uncomfortable and didn't know how to respond. Very unlikely that they're mocking me, this like random dealer. So it's a lot of it too, I think, because other people tend to get more upset about it than I am, which I find funny. I'm not super upset. Like I'm not, I'm not fuming that the the floor person at the RA misgendered me, and then the dealer, when I sat down, misgendered me, and then the cage person misgendered me. It's annoying. It makes my day slightly worse that it happened, and I'm losing sleep over it, right? So, you know, I try to use my... I gotta be honest, I'm super pissed about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, people tend to be a little more annoyed about it than I am, and that's totally okay. Like, you, I, I'm happy that you are, in the sense that I want people to feel like, you know, and th- again, this will kind of wrap maybe put a bow on the discussion too when we talk about standing up for people or we talk about supporting people who are marginalized or whatever the case may be one of the best things you can do and this is something i i I very strongly emphasize this to cisgender people and straight people broadly just like non-queer people if someone makes a really rude comment or a misogynistic comment or a transphobic comment and there's no queer people present like, let's just say it's a bunch of dudes, and they're all straight dudes, and they love guns and America. Okay, that's what that's the picture I'm painting for us. Which there's nothing wrong if you love guns in America. I too think guns are pretty cool, and I think America's all right. So you know, we have some common ground. I'll say that you should tell that person, "Hey, come on, man. Like, that's not really cool. That's it. That's all you got to do. It's not like I do it all the time. Trust me, all the time. Someone makes a comment, and I'm like hey, we, should, we shouldn't really be talking about women that way, right? And I'll just say that. What are you good? It's undeniably true. That's the thing I think for most people is they make the misogynistic comment and then you say, hey, that's like not really an okay thing to say. And then they're like really rarely going to double down on that comment because it's obvious that it's kind of not okay. They kind of know it's not okay. Everyone's like very often, a lot of people are thinking that it's not okay, Right. And you can, you can even de-escalate it from there. If they try to escalate it, you can just be like, hey, I'm just letting you know how I feel, man. It's all good. you know. And having one person at the table who's willing to just sort of say that, that goes a long way to making that kind of comment unwelcome. right? I think people, especially men, underrate how much power they have by saying, come on, man, don't say that. That's it. You have so much power in like the social power you have in letting someone who perceives you as an equal say that you don't find what they said appropriate is very large. So really encourage people to utilize that power because I don't have that power anymore. I have given it up. I have cast my male privilege to the wind when I took my first shot of estrogen. And in doing so now, I I do stick up for myself and I do try to advocate for what's right. But the same kind of person making a misogynistic comment is going to take me less seriously than they're going to take you. And I think that's the thing I try to impart. I think that's amazing advice, and I'm going to take that to heart. I came across a scenario a few weeks ago that I shared with Dell, where we're at a table, like you said, of just dudes, and somebody made a chauvinistic comment. I didn't say anything. And I came to Dell, and we were talking about it. And what we came down to was that no one said anything because they sought the approval of others at the table. So I have to challenge myself challenge Dell, challenge our listeners, what's more important? Is it more important for us as our cisgendered, white, heteronormative males to seek the approval of other cisgender, white, heteronormative males? Or is it more important to just make that one comment? Like, dude, can we not talk that way about women? 
and just leave it there. That's actually really easy, low key, low stress way and easy to deescalate if anyone says anything otherwise. Just got, I, I just want to let you know how I feel. That's all. That's it. For me, I'm going to come down on the side of the fence where my personal satisfaction of having the approval of everyone else at the table plays second fiddle. I don't need it. It's more important to me to make that one easy, low stress comment. So I would challenge all of our listeners to do the same. I think that's amazing, amazing advice. I'm, I'm glad you shared that. I will also just say it's not necessarily like everybody fits into a category and we all sort of make sure that every category is included or anything like that. I just think it's kind of obvious, at least to me, I think it's also obvious to most people when a comment is kind of dehumanizing or uh, objectifying or whatever, right? And whenever you identify that feeling, uh, which is a feeling that we've all had where we hear something and we're like, that doesn't seem right, just in this small way, act on it, right? And it's not necessarily even about the maleness or the whiteness or the straightness of any particular group. It's just that, I mean, I've been at tables with like five women and someone's made a comment like that, right? Like it's, yeah, I know. Right? So it's like, I think in general, and I think this is probably speaks to that person being really uncomfortable. So, uh, and like not used to playing poker with women. So I just want to really emphasize that like, socially speaking, we're all incentivized as poker players for more people to play poker. And we're all incentivized for poker to be enjoyable for anybody who chooses to play poker. If I think about myself as a professional, I'm very kind to beginners because in some ways they pay my rent for a little while. So, you know, people less skilled than me. So I, I'm sort of monetarily incentivized, but I'm also incentivized from a like personal enjoyment perspective. I think poker is a lot more fun when there's a lot of diverse voices at the table, when there's lots of topics of conversation and people are exchanging ideas freely and have lots of different life experiences. I think that makes the game much better and much more beautiful. And also just from a like poker economy perspective, like more people playing poker is more poker rooms, more games running. Oh, are you really bummed out that 510 doesn't run at your local card room? Well, one day it might if you try to like get more people playing poker. There might be a day where 510 runs regularly at your local card room. So there's a lot of incentives. All the incentives point towards being inclusive of people and not making people feel excluded. I know that you offer free coaching to trans persons. Uh, do you still do that? Are you still going to do that going forward? Yeah, I am. I've had a couple people reach out to me and get some coaching from me, which I'm very humbled that people took me up on the offer at all. I, I expected that to just be like, uh, I don't I don't want to say virtue signaling because I, I am trans, so that'd be kind of weird. But <laughs> uh, the uh, I didn't necessarily expect you to take, it up, take me up on it, just given the, there's not that many trans people who play poker. But there are some. I've actually had some pretty cool moments where people have reached out to me to say, hey, I've really started to realize that I think I am transgender. I think it's really cool that there's at least one other poker player who is publicly visible in some way who plays and is trans. I think that's really neat. So yeah, I've had some people take me up on it. Um, not in any sort of serious long-term way, but like I totally wouldn't mind if other, if anybody's listening to this podcast and is trans and wants free poker coaching, you know where to find it. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure to put the details in the show notes and on our website. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. So, Dal, I can't think of any better way to end this podcast episode right there. I mean, we talked about June's journey from three and a half years of becoming a professional poker player, the lessons June's learned, how to make poker more inclusive and less stressful when we're encountering those potentially contentious situations 
which really aren't that contentious. It's really easily diffused with just a simple comment. And I think we have a call to action for all of our listeners, and I know I do for myself, to take those easy actions when we're presented with those opportunities. So I think this has been an amazing conversation, an amazing episode. It has been, and I've been excited all week to to have this conversation with June, and quite frankly, it hasn't disappointed. I want to thank you for joining us on our podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I think this will probably be the last show I do before I start my new gig, and um, you two have both been very welcoming and enjoyable to talk to. I really appreciate it. Well, best of luck in your new gig, and I hope to play it when it comes out on mobile. Yes. <laughs> do you have any last words, Dale? I do not. This has been great. Thanks, as always. Thanks for joining us, June. It's been a treat. And until next week, stick to the plan and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. 